Now, today we're going to talk a bit from John chapter 9. The Gospel of John is one of my favorite, favorite uh, Gospels, really book in the whole Bible, because it's so centered on the life and the ministry of Jesus. And it is here and in the chapters that follow that we can mine some important, some key insights about belief, about faith, and about following Christ. This is a rather fitting topic to discuss on Easter Sunday, when we really are thinking about our faith. The, the faith as we understand it was really inaugurated on that day. When Jesus came out of the grave, every promise that he offered to the world was fulfilled. And we are living in those promises right now, living them out and sort of executing them. We are functioning in the world, showing the world everything that Jesus said would happen through our life and pursuit of Christ. And so in our text, Jesus has just died. This is just before his resurrection. We're in that middle ground. In our text, Jesus has just died. And as promised, really good things are already starting to happen because of his death. Out of a very tragic situation, God began to do amazing things. In particular, in the subject of what we're talking about today, others are starting to believe, find the eternal life he promised them on the cross. And so with this in mind, today we're going to answer two questions. I just want to dialogue about them, about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The first is, why did it happen? At least according to the Gospel of John. That's a very long answer. But we're going to look at one element of why it happened. And then we're going to discuss who it happened for. And so I want to jump in by examining why the death of Jesus happened. That's how we'll begin our teaching today. And keep in mind, when we talk about faith and belief, that the, the cross accomplished a great many things. Depending on what year you're here, we, we sort of nuance what we discuss. I kind of feel like Easter is a, is a big prism. And there are many ways we can sort of tweak the light that comes out of the truth of Easter. Some years we're very apologetic. Some years we are more emotive and we speak to the heart. Some years we're a combination of both. This year I want to talk about the significance of belief and faith. Because according to John, this is why Jesus, one of the main reasons anyways, this is why Jesus did what he did. So the only truth I want to discuss with you this morning is this. The death and resurrection of Jesus happened so that you and I would believe in Jesus. That is the foundational truth John is communicating to us here. It is the foundational truth of the entire New Testament, and it is the reason the Old Testament is written. God is pointing the attention of men and women to the fact that he desires a relationship with us, wants us to know him, wants us to have faith, wants us to believe in the promises he offers us, particularly in Jesus. And the reason I say the death and resurrection of Jesus happened so that you and I would believe in Jesus is because John has said this. And I want to read to you, reread John chapter 19, verse 35. The man who saw it, John, has given testimony. And his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. Now what's happening here is John is letting us know that the events we celebrate this day are true. He is a person who has seen them. And he's trying to, with a very forceful way, let us know that the reason this has happened is so that we would believe. And this is not the first time John has said he wants us to believe in Jesus. He's also not the only person that says he wants us to believe in Christ. In fact, it's really the thesis of this whole gospel and the entire scripture. We first hear about this in the, in the gospel of John anyways, in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And there you've probably noticed, because John also does this here, John is using very technical language. What we would call legal language, courtroom language. He's using words like testified and, and true, the kinds of things you would expect to see in a modern courtroom or even in an ancient court of law. John tells us he's sent by God. His sole purpose is to bear witness to this truth, that Jesus is the Son of God, and he came to take away the sin of the world. So throughout the rest of this gospel, he keeps this courtroom feel, writing not as somebody who heard about what Jesus did, 
not as somebody who, you know, this information was passed on to him. He is very explicit that he wants us to know he is somebody who personally saw what Jesus did. And he does this so we'll know there is eyewitness credibility in everything he's telling us about Jesus. He's saying, listen, I saw this and I want to tell you the story of what I saw. And so true to his word, John has sought throughout his whole gospel, and it begins to culminate here as we, as we talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He has sought to present this credible case for the person of Jesus. And in verse 35, he tells us that he did this so that we would believe the claims of Christ. That we would trust in his redemptive work on the cross, and we would affirm the fact that he overcame the grave. He brought life out of death and offers us the same thing, life in this earth and life eternal. This is a teaching, a text about belief. And for clarity's sake, I want to briefly talk about what the Bible means when it talks about believing in Jesus. There's a lot of texts in the Bible that talk about believing in Jesus. But there are two major kinds of belief that I want to briefly mention this morning before we move on. Think of them as two subcategories under the major heading of belief. And as we proceed, I want to challenge every one of you in this room to honestly decide which subcategory you fall into. Because when it comes to belief in Christ, you're really in one or the other. There's no middle ground in the sense of, of what we're going to talk about today. I'm not saying we don't have space to process or explore. I'm just saying when it comes down to it, there are two types of belief in this world. The first kind is addressing those who are very far from God or unbelievers. The first kind of belief we're talking about here is that unbelievers would believe in Jesus' gospel, in Christ's gospel. This is a text, and this is why, uh, why John is sort of letting us know who he is, that he's a reputable person. This is an obvious one. When we talk about belief, we almost always think about this from this angle, especially as Christians. And it explains why John has been so careful to present a credible account of Jesus in the Bible. Because he is rightly assuming there will always be skeptics in life who think the claims of Jesus are not credible who think the things we celebrate today are silly myths and riddles. It wasn't like we were, we're more sophisticated today in the modern world and that's why we believe this stuff. And in the ancient world, people needed stuff to believe. So they, they followed these gods in the Bible. This is not what he's saying. What he's telling us here is skepticism has always saturated the human mind. And there has always been skepticism towards Jesus. This is why he places so much emphasis on making sure we know he saw everything Jesus did. He saw everything he said that he was going to do with his own eyes. And he was also a recipient of that grace. He didn't just see it. He was invited into that. He was a part of the very relationship he offers to us today. And so with this incredibly important detail in mind, I want to ask you, if you're here today and maybe you're wrestling with the, the claims of Christ, maybe you're visiting our church for the first time, or maybe you've been with us for some time and you don't fully buy into this stuff yet, I want you to know that that's actually okay. We actually have a great place for you at our table here. We love when men and women really try to seek out the truth and the claims of Jesus. All that I ask from you as we move forward is that you, you let your skepticism at some point throughout the time we have this morning also be put on trial. Don't just take these ideas and move away from them. Take these ideas and these truths as we compile them today and actually ask if there is some credibility to them. In other words, put your own skepticism on the same type of trial that we often put the Son of God on by really thinking about the things we're talking about today. In particular, John's eyewitness account of what Jesus said he did for you and I on the cross. And so the first type of belief we talk about today is that John wants men and women who don't know Jesus to know Jesus. And every one of us in this room, if we are in Jesus, at some point was in this category. There was a moment in life where we recognized that Jesus is who he says he is. There was a moment that we believed. And so I want you to be empathetic to those who might still be in this place. 
Our ability to love and care for them is much greater when we recognize the difficulties and the challenges that maybe we had in finding Christ or believing some of the things that we maybe, they're, they're near and dear to our heart right now. He's out of the grave. For some people, this is an outlandish reality. And God desires us to long suffer and be patient for them, with them. He desires that we be part of the way that they believe by listening and answering questions. And so the first kind of belief is that those who are far from God would find God. The second kind of belief is directly addressed to those of us who are following Jesus, who have already believed, past tense. The second kind of belief is that the Christian would believe more deeply in Christ's gospel. And this is where we get a little fuzzy. This is the not-so-obvious kind of belief, because for many Christians, belief is a past tense verb. It's something we did once when we chose to follow Jesus. We tend to miss this at times because there's a common misconception, several of them, especially when we talk about the foundational truth that we're talking about today. There can oftentimes be a, a, a convoluted idea of what maturing in Christ means. And for some of us, we believe maturing in Christ is the equivalent of knowing more stuff about Jesus, the accumulation of information or knowledge about God. We often equate our ability to, to store fact about Christ in our minds as maturity in Jesus. And if this is where you are, or you've ever met somebody who is like this, for this person, the very foundational truth that we declare today, that he is risen, the gospel, right? Paul specifically designs the gospel as the life, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel becomes not something that we value on a regular basis. It becomes what I like to say is a simple stepping stone. We might think about it on Easter or around Christmas time, but for the most part, we view these things as something Jesus already did and something we already believed in. Something you believe in at one point in your life and then move on from to get to more meaningful stuff in the Christian faith, the real deep stuff in the Christian faith. At best, that is a, it's a wholly incomplete definition of what belief in Jesus is. And it is one that will impede the Christian from experiencing the fullness of life, life that Christ promises to his followers. So if we view the things that we celebrate today as something that happened, and then after Easter we move on from this stuff, we actually not only do the gospel a disservice, but we do our faith a disservice. Because the truth is that Christian maturity, it is never based on how much you know about Jesus and his gospel. Rather, it is rooted in how deeply you know Jesus and his gospel. I want to say that again. The truth about Christian maturity isn't based on how much you and I know about Jesus and his gospel. It is rooted in how deeply you and I know Jesus and his gospel. There is an incredibly personal slash relational aspect to what we know. And genuine gospel belief is much more than just knowing stuff or verses in the Bible that talk about the life and the resurrection of Jesus. Knowing stuff in the Bible is much more than just knowing about peace, for example. I like to use this example a lot. It's one thing to have memorized all of the biblical verses about peace in our lives. How, how Jesus promises peace during the trial. I mean, is the cross an example of this or what? Peace during the trial. Those who lamented for Jesus eventually recognized he brought something amazing out of that trial. It's one thing to know that cognitively. It's an entirely different thing to actually have peace in your life when the trials come. That is how we know the gospel is bearing fruit in our lives. It is when the promises of Jesus are no longer just things we've heard. They are realized things in our life. They provide peace in the moments we are without it because we have a greater hope in the light and the life of Christ. Let me give you an example of this. Listen to how Paul describes our belief in the gospel in Colossians. He does not speak about it as something we think about once a year. Colossians 1.6, it'll be behind me. He says, the gospel is bearing fruit. Present tense. 
The gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. What he says here is the gospel was bearing fruit the day you believed, and the gospel is bearing fruit every day since. Not just in your life and in mine, those who follow Jesus, but in the world around us. He speaks of this truth as a present tense reality that has an incredible importance on the future tense of our life. And in this verse, Paul gives us an important truth about what believing more deeply in Jesus means. For those of us who, who you know, declaratively state he has risen, his teaching in Colossians speaks to us. He says belief in Jesus' love, in Jesus' death for you and I on the cross, in his resurrection, can never be reduced to this one-time event we believe in and move on from. Rather, it is the most important truth in the Bible you and I must train our hearts to perpetually return to. If we want peace today, we have to figure out how peace was provided to us through what Jesus did on the cross. If we want hope today, studying teachings on hope, while it's incredibly important, if they are disconnected from the ultimate hope Jesus provided the world on the cross, we lose the authority to actually realize the truth of those verses in our lives. We cannot forget about this. The nature of the good news of the gospel is that it is both the means by which we enter this relationship with God, and it is without doubt the motivation for how we continue to grow in our relationship with God. Contrary to common belief, the gospel is not just God's offer of salvation. I say this a lot in here. It is actually his offer to the world of himself. His offer of salvation is him offering himself to us. And how you see this, how you understand your faith in Jesus, will deeply be shaped if you understand that Jesus doesn't just offer you grace as if it's some abstract thing he doles out. He is grace, and with his grace comes him. One is a theological fact. What is grace? The other is a relational reality, that the grace of Jesus comes with Jesus himself. And there is great power in that. This is why we are encouraged to, delete, to believe more deeply. And so John's emphasis here is very clear. He wants all people, no matter where we're coming from in life, to really believe in Jesus' truth, to believe in his gospel, to believe in what he has done. And right after he says this, that his, his sort of thesis here is that we would believe. Right after he says this, a guy named Nicodemus shows up. This is a guy who earlier in the Gospel of John, if you've ever read the Gospel of John, you know that he was very intrigued by Jesus. But he struggled to believe in Jesus. And up until now, we didn't know what happened to him. But we're about to find out, as Nicodemus and a man named Joseph of Arimathea are going to answer our second question for us. Who is the death of Jesus for? The death of Jesus happens, the resurrection of Jesus happens, so we would believe. But now we get some very specific details on who this was offered to. The death and resurrection of Jesus is for all people, no matter what their status is in life. And we see this very explicitly in John 19, verses 38 through 39. I want to reread them. It'll be behind me. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now remember, Pilate's, he's the chief dog in this region. Anything that happens, happens through him. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. So what we have here is closet belief, meaning he loves Christ, but he is recognizing how significant the cost of following Jesus is. With Pilate's permission, he came, this is Joseph, he came and took the body away. And he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. And in case you don't know, uh, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe is a ton of wealthy stuff. You know, we think of spices like, they cost 59 cents at Walmart today. But these types of spices here were extravagant. They were the sign of somebody with wealth and affluence. And so what I want to point out here is that there are some skeptics of Christianity 
that have chosen to deny Jesus because they feel that they are not the type of person who needs faith. They hear what we just said about belief, what John said, and they think, you know, faith or belief, uh, that's just not for me. That's for a certain type of person, and I'm not that person. This is the person who has a preconceived notion about the kind of person who needs faith. They, they have a stereotypical box that they paint around people of faith. And it goes something like this. They'll say, you know, people who need faith, well, they need it because they really can't deal with the realities of life, so they're just going to bury themselves in this faith stuff to cope. You know, the world's a rough and cruel place, and it makes sense to have a, you know, a fairy tale God who promises hope when you're without it. That, all, that sounds good, but the truth is that I'm a realist, and I can cope with this stuff without faith. This is a very common argument used against people of faith in the modern world. And I want to share with you some of the stereotypes, some of the sort of expressed statements that you can see that when somebody believes this way. You might have even heard some of these things. Maybe you've affirmed them at some point in your life. I'll mention two briefly, and then I want to spend the remainder of our time looking at one in particular. Some people will say, hey, you know, faith is only for people uh, who are emotionally broken. The kind of faith that, uh, that uh, John is talking about here this is for people who can't deal with their own problems. So it makes sense that they get born again. You know, I'm the type of person who can fix myself. I'm the type of first person who can sort out what's going on in my own life. And I'm not saying people of faith do not have the aptitude to do this. I'm just saying people of faith at some point recognize sometimes there are realities under heaven that we cannot sort on our own, that we cannot fix by the strength of our own bootstraps. So they say here, you know, these people, they sort of see faith as a bit of a cop-out. And it's reserved for... They won't say it this way, but what they mean is they're sort of like reserved for societal bottom dwellers who can't hack it on their own. They'll say, I've, you know, I've heard of your Bible, and the tax collectors and the prostitutes, those are the types of people who need religion, uh, but not me, because I've got my life put together. And they'll, they'll sort of, out of some superiority complex, determine why they see faith as a sign of weakness, why you need it and they don't. Only for people who are broken. The problem with that is everyone in this world is broken. Whether we admit it or not is another story. Others say faith is for people who have no direction in life. It's sort of tweaking the prism a little bit. They say these types of folks, you know, you need faith because, well, of course you're 31 and you have no direction in life. So you need somebody to step in and give you some direction. Enter God. This is the person who says faith is for people who can't develop their own path in life. So they find religion because it completely and conveniently figures all of this out for you. That's not true. Uh, probably by the diversity of the way we understand faith, this would express itself in this room. You know, there's some linear and clear teachings in the Bible without doubt, but there's all kinds of different opinions about it at times. People have different perspectives, and we all have different narratives in life. So it isn't that we get faith and then we all become homogenous robots. In fact, we would say that's a very strong sign of an unhealthy church. What they're saying here is you couldn't think on your own, so you found a God who thinks for you, and he offers you a ready-made compass for life. And they'll say, you need that, but I don't because I know where I'm going in life. I just don't need belief. And I wonder if they feel the same way when they lose the job or that direction in life or when they struggle with the very real things that can't be controlled by our ability to control all things. So some say, this is for people who have no direction in life. My favorite one, and I say favorite meaning it's because I think it's one of the most common, but I also think it's one of the most important ones for us to be able to get our heads and hearts wrapped around, is this. Some will say faith is dangerous very dangerous, and for the simple-minded who can't think for themselves. So they follow a God who does it for them. And this is like a combination of these last two. They say, look, you're, you, faith is just straight up a problem. If you look at what it's done in the world, it's an issue. The best example we have of this stereotype can be seen in a quote from the late but still world-famous English atheist Christopher Hitchens. Now, I quote him in here. If you're part of Restoration, you know I quote him in here almost as much as I do other Bible scholars. 
He is my favorite atheist, without question. He has passed away from cancer years ago. And I always mention this, and I, there's no sarcasm in this. When we lost Christopher Hitchens, the world lost the best atheist that it had ever seen. He was an amazing guy. He was incredibly consistent in his belief. He was one of the greatest adversaries of faith. But the reason I respected him so much is that he is truly an atheist. Most people that claim to be atheists, they have this, this, this concocted belief system. That's a bunch of things. And then they claim it's atheism. But Christopher Hitchens was one of the rare atheists, like a real atheist. Everything he said went back to the fact that he believed there was no God. And that's why I think he's one of the best persons to discuss when we speak about things like this. He was best known for his adversarial and derogatory stance against the idea of faith. Now, you know there's a famous uh, song we sing in the church, at least in this church at times. You ever, you ever sang the song, God is Great, or sang that in a hymn, or heard it in a sermon, right? That's a sort of a foundational statement of the Christian faith, that God is good, God is great. Well, he wrote a book called God is Not Great, okay? No surprise. And in his book, he said this about faith. I want to share it with you. He said, if one must have faith in order to believe something, or believe in something, then the likelihood of that something having any truth or value is considerably diminished. The harder work of inquiry, proof, and demonstration is infinitely more rewarding and has confronted us with findings far more miraculous and transcendent than any theology. And those quotes around those words are meant to imply some sarcasm. I'm going to read that again to you. If one must have faith in order to believe something or believe in something, then the likelihood of that something having any truth or value is considerably diminished. The harder work of inquiry, proof, and demonstration is infinitely more rewarding and has confronted us with findings far more miraculous and transcendent than any theology. And this is a pretty cutting statement. And it, it's a problematic statement, not just for the faith community, but for the person who claims this statement. And I want to share why. In one breath, this belief, faith is a problem. You latch onto it because you don't know any better, and it's a problem. In one breath, this position states that faith in anything is faulty, that eventually it leads to misconceptions, to fanaticisms, to delusions, and in its worst form, extremes. He says faith in anything is a lesser truth and the enemy of progress of our, in our society. But then in the very same breath, he purports that we are much better off replacing, he doesn't use this word, but if you read the book, this is the, the premise of it, it's also one of the major premises of atheism, he also purports that we are much better off replacing faith with reason. Words like inquiry and proof. I'm not against reason in here. We really love it and use it a lot. But what he's doing is pitting these two things against each other. And he says, the harder work of inquiry and the proof yields a much greater and more accurate reward than faith can ever in our world. The simple translation here is this. Faith leads to a lot of bad things, while reason leads to a lot of good things. This is a popular faith stereotype. It's what was birthed in our world to the Enlightenment. And we've been living with this for 400, 500 years. And we essentially displaced God as being great and put the faculties of humanity on the throne of humanity. And out of logic and reason, a lot of good things came about, but also some not so good things. And we can also say the truth, the same thing, for abused faith. And this is where I'm going this morning. Sometimes we look at faith expressions in our world and they're not good ones. We want to make a place for that. But there's also no solution in reason being all right and true and all perfect in all ways. It's almost as if the person who thinks this way believes that humanity's logic and reason, disconnected from any type of faith in God, has found a way forward that can create a better world than the one where faith exists. But this is not true. Because even the approved logic of the world can be wrong. 
in small and large-scale ways. Because at the end of the day, our logic and reason are human faculties. And they, like the rest of the world, are imperfect. They are tainted by the problem of sin. Let me give you an example of this. It's, it's a, a small example, but nonetheless it posed a serious, potentially serious problem. Many of you know that years ago, my family and I, we adopted one of our daughters from China. That process was very costly and incredibly lengthy, in large part because of all the governmental and adoption agency paperwork we had to do. And because we did an overseas adoption, we not only had to satisfy the requests of the U.S. government to adopt our daughter and bring her here, we had to do the same for the Chinese government. So we were working with two governments to be able to, to bring this to fruition, to get our daughter. One of the common parts of the adoption process, it probably makes sense to you, is interviews. Tons of them. Face-to-face interviews, in-home interviews, Skype interviews, phone call interviews. There were lots of interviews. Some were, uh, some were more personal, some were very cold. But in one of my phone interviews, which was designed to determine how stable our home life was, this was one of many, I was put on the hot seat by an interviewer of a private adoption agency. And during the interview, I was asked a series of questions, many of them about the stability of my line of work. So after explaining to this person that I was a pastor, the question immediately following my explanation was this. They said, well, how long have you been working in churches? That's how they understand this, working in churches. How long have you been working in churches? And at that time, I said it had been just shy of 13 years. And the interviewer then immediately said to me, wow, that's really unusual for someone your age to have, had been, have been in the same line of work for that long. I was in my young 30s then. And when I heard that, I thought, well, I just got paid a really nice compliment. Right? I felt good about myself, perked up, straightened my tie, combed my eyebrows. It was all good. I thought the interview was going to be over after that. But apparently, I could not have misread that statement in a more significant way. Because the person went on to say, no, no, I mean it's not normal for a person in your 30s to have the same career for that long. And at that point, I got a little confused. But then I realized this was a potential problem for them. I don't exactly know why. We then proceeded to discuss the workers' thought about this. And it was clear that this person had a whole line of reasoning and inquiry that supported their view. They just thought there was something not natural about young people having the same job for that long at my age. And it was surprising and very frustrating because there wasn't any reasoning I could use to convince the person otherwise. I could not get my point across that I liked doing what I was doing and had no intentions of changing it. What I really wanted to say to the person was very unreasonable and steeped in sarcasm. I wanted to say something like this. Well, since we can't agree on the fact that I have a steady job and I enjoy what I do, why don't we do this? Let me call you back in about three months. During that time, I'll get several jobs and quit them all. I'll also rack up a ton of credit card debt and miss a few house payments for good measure. Can we agree that this is your next step plan? That's what I wanted to say. But there was no communicating to this person anyway. And eventually what I had to say was, we have to agree to disagree here. My point, this person had deduced for some reason that consistency in a career for someone in their 30s was an abnormal thing. This is where their approved logic in that moment was incredibly illogical. The problem with illogical logic is the person with the illogical logic never recognizes it. You need somebody objectively to speak into that. And that's true with abusive faith paradigms. You often need outside truth to correct logic when it is incorrect or faith. And there's a serious connection that I want to make here when it comes to faith and reason. In both of these situations, whether it's an unhealthy faith structure, there's no shortage of those in the world, or a logic that seems somewhat illogical, which is a prevalent problem in our world today, if you need proof that there's a ton of illogical thought in our world today, go ahead and turn some of the cable news networks on today when you go home and watch that for 20 minutes 
while you're shoveling deviled eggs down your throat at your Easter picnic, right? That stuff is nonsense. I watched that stuff, and I got to pop blood pressure pills. It is, it is a pit of just nastiness. The world is steeped in illogical logic. In both of these cases, the disciplines of faith and reason are not the issue. Please hear me when I say this. It is the way the people understand and use faith and reason that can make them very beautiful things or very dangerous things. And this is why I say Christopher Hitchens is my favorite atheist. Because I actually want you to listen to what he said. What he said is right. To a certain degree, Hitchens is right about the dangers of a blind leap of faith into anything. I don't think he's thought that much about human logic and reason. But what I want to say is we should be mindful about this. However, to say that a rooted biblical faith in Christ, the one we preach about here every week, flesh out in our community groups, live at coffee tables with other people and lunches, the kind of faith we're talking about today, it does not denigrate our thinking faculties or devalue truth. Maybe it does for some people, but this seems to be the illogical reality of a quote like this. This is no different than a person scolding me for having a job. The truth is that most people who have come to the kind of resurrection faith we're talking about today, they really have thought about this. They have, as Jesus says, counted a cost. A great many of you have. And they just deduce there are lots of things in this world you can trust in. But for us that really love Jesus, we come back to this truth again and again. Jesus just makes the most sense. He really does. He transcends the nonsense and gives us a, a rudder of truth in a world that often lacks one. And that's why all of those stereotypes about the type of person who needs faith, they're very real. I'm not saying they're not out there, but I do believe there is a level of, in, uh, there's just an invalid level to them that needs to be in, addressed. And John uses the lives of Nicodemus and Joseph to show us why. So we'll wrap up. Just look at their resumes. In John 3, we learn that Nicodemus is a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. What this means is he is extremely educated. He is affluent. He is reputable. He is a teacher of the law. He is an authority figure, a man of repute. Joseph of Arimathea, very similar. And here's how we know this. We can rightly assume he was in some position of power because he had the clout to go to the most powerful man in all of Judea, Pontius Pilate. You don't just walk off of the street and speak to the governor of a region and ask them to do something. You have to know somebody or be somebody to get that audience. He asks him to release the body of Jesus, and he does. There's some respect there. He lets it go. Neither man had a stereotypical need for Jesus. Neither one of these men fit in the categories we just spoke about. But we know because of their actions here and the ones that follow, as the end of the Gospel of John is written, that they chose to follow him. And so I leave you with this closing thought this morning. Joseph and Nicodemus show us there is no singular type of person that has a need for Jesus. There is no stereotypical type of person who has a need for Jesus. These two men, as well as the rest of the stories in the Bible, and the ones we know in our own lives, very likely, they smash these worldly stereotypes because they show us every person needs Jesus. Our societal standings in this world have no bearing on how God sees our spiritual condition before him. In Christ, the playing field is very level. No matter where you're coming from in life, here's why there is hope in this. No matter where you're coming from in life, whether you feel it is the lowest of the low, you think you are at the bottom of the rung of society. If you believe that about yourself, well, you should first know that Jesus Christ himself does not believe that about yourself. Your worth was proven on the cross. But if you believe that, or if you believe you're the highest of the high, what you have to know is it doesn't matter. Every person is equal in the eyes of God. They have equal need of God, and they are equally loved by God. And the facts of the scripture are very clear about this. It wasn't just the irreligious, adulterous woman at the well who broke all the rules 
that needed Jesus. The one society gave up on and labeled an outcast, it wasn't just her that needed Jesus. Nicodemus and Joseph show us the religious upright, all those who kept the rules, the self-righteous, the Pharisees, all of them, the ones who society deemed as elite, they needed him too. There's a great humility in understanding who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And it should create a deeper love and burden for our neighbor. For those of us in Christ, we should never have the prerogative or feel that we have the prerogative to look down on another because God does not. The cross leveled that playing field. And so as we close this Easter Sunday, remember, Jesus went to the cross and he came out of the grave for a host of reasons. He satisfied the just demands of God to deal with sin. He overcame the grave. He gave us life. But he also came out so that we would find life. As John said, so that we would believe. This is something great to talk about on Easter. But the real truth of whether or not we know this is whether or not this truth defines our life every waking moment when we leave this room. In six months when Easter is an afterthought, does the power of the resurrection still reign supreme in our life? Because it teaches us that Jesus overcame. And what that means is we can overcome too. And this life we speak about begins when you trust the credible words of John in the Bible and believe in the one whom he testified about. That's why he wrote this book for us. He saw what happened and wants us to believe in the one who made grace a reality for the world far from God. So today I encourage you to believe in Jesus for the first time. Figure out what category you fall in. If you've not believed in Jesus, let this be the day you do. If you are in Christ, believe in him more deeply. Ask him to show you the places of your heart where you doubt. Yes, you believe in Jesus, but there are places in your heart that are the light's been snuffed out by shadow. Ask God to illuminate those areas, to restore your joy, your hope, your peace, whatever it is. As we move to our response time today, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about your belief in him? Because remember, today we celebrate the truth that he has risen, is being the key word. We don't say he has risen. We say he is risen because he's still risen and he still reigns supreme in the throne of heaven. And we wait for the day that he returns once and for all and takes us back with him.